This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Okay, the word of the Lord, Mark chapter 7. A group of Pharisees with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem met Jesus and noticed that some of his disciples were eating their food with defiled hands, in other words, without washing them. For Pharisees and Jews in general never eat without washing their hands in obedience to ancient tradition. And on coming from the marketplace, they never eat without first washing. And there are many other points on which they maintain traditional rules, for example, in the washing of cups and jugs and copper bowls. These Pharisees and scribes question Jesus. Why do your disciples not conform to the ancient tradition, but eat their food with defiled hands? Jesus answered, How right Isaiah was when he prophesied about you hypocrites. In these words, This people pays me lip service, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, for they teach as doctrines the commandments of of men. You neglect the commandment of God in order to maintain the tradition of men. He said to them, How clever you are at setting aside the commandment of God in order to maintain your tradition. Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And again, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Oh, but you hold that if someone says to his father or mother, Anything which I which might have been used for your benefit is Corban, that is, set apart for God, he is no longer allowed to do anything for his father or mother. In this way, by your tradition handed down among you, you make God's word null and void, and you do many other things just like that. On another occasion, he called the people and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand this. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. No, it is the things that come out of a person that defile him. When he'd left the people and gone indoors, his disciples questioned him about the parable. He said to them, Are you as dull as the rest? Do you not see that nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him? Because it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach, and so goes out into the drain. By saying this, he declared all foods clean. He went on, It is what comes out of a person that defiles him. From inside, from the human heart, come evil thoughts, acts of fornication, theft, murder, adultery, greed, and malice, fraud, indecency, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. So this afternoon, we have some very searing and uncomfortable words from Jesus on the topic of hypocrisy. And this is one of those chapters that, as a preacher, you're just forced to go through because it's the next chapter in the Word of God, and it's a little uncomfortable being faced yourself with your own hypocrisy. Now, one of the good things about preaching about this sin is when we preach about other sins, often the people who are sinning are not the type of people who go to church, but all the hypocrites are here today. Isn't that great? Including myself. For don't we all struggle at some level with a lack of complete wholeness and truth 
and integrity before God. And which of us here today can look deep into his own heart and say with total honesty, I am a man or a woman or a child that can be completely open before the Lord and there is absolutely nothing false in me. And this afternoon, we are all challenged by these searing words of Jesus that confront us with our own dishonesty and our own lack of truth. The good news is that Jesus does not confront us to rake us over the coals, to make us feel horrible about ourselves, but only in that encountering ourselves in truth, we may encounter God in grace. And if we're a people who are lying to ourselves and deceiving others, we can never really experience the freedom of God's grace. So please, I ask you, bear with me through this tough and challenging and maybe even brutal text so that we can experience the goodness that God has for us in Christ Jesus when we meet him in a place of truth. When Michelle and I moved to Georgia a couple years ago, we had an encounter with the berry lady, we call her. And she rang in our doorbell, crying her berry song, and we opened the door, and she had before her a huge bucket of the most luscious and shining raspberries. They were red, they were bright, they were firm, and we joyfully handed over 25 lari for this large bucket of berries. And she left, and we excitedly dug our arms in, and guess what we found? It was only the top layer or two that were the good berries. Down below, it was mushy, and it was half-rotten, and basically inedible. And I wonder how many uh, layers of good berries we have on the top of our buckets. Some of us have got the ugly stuff poking right through, but... Is it not our human tendency to want to present a good picture to others, to put the nice berries on the top of the bucket where other people can see them, and even give them a few few shots with the mister so they look nice and wet and wholesome and healthy? God knows what is down at the bottom of our buckets. The good news is that God can handle it, and he can deal with it, and we don't have to fake, and we don't have to pretend before God. And this whole situation is raised by a group of Pharisees and scribes who come up from Jerusalem. They are kind of a religious, a group of religious compliance officers, and they've heard about this prophet up in Galilee doing some very uh, odd things that have attracted the attention of central headquarters. And these ambassadors, these delegates are sent up 90 miles north to Galilee to just check it out and see what's going on and making sure that Jesus is doing things properly. And it is amazing that these guys come up and they witness these incredible miracles of Jesus laying his hands on people and healing them and casting out demons and even feeding this crowd of 5,000 people. And is that what attracts their attention? Are they even aware of the amazing power of God that is working in Jesus and the liberation and freedom that he's bringing to people? No. What strikes them, what they pick on, is this. Your disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They're not doing the proper ceremonial cleansing of their hands. I don't care if there's 5,000 people eating bread here. They're not rinsing their hands like a good Jew 
should be. What, what, what kind of horror is going on up here in Galilee? We need some regulation. And this is not a concern about personal hygiene. This is all about ritual purity before God. And there was no commandment in the Old Testament that told people they had to do this. It was only the priests in the Old Testament that had to wash their hands, had to rinse themselves ceremonially before going into the temple. And the thought for them was this, not every man's home is his castle, but every man's home is his temple. And look, guys, if we want to be a people that are really serious about holiness, if we are really serious about seeking the presence of God among us, we need some direction. And the Pharisees and the religious scribes were all about filling in the gaps in the Old Testament. Okay, there are some some big principles, but things have changed in the 1,500 years since Moses gave these laws. We're not in the same economic or historical situation anymore. We're under Roman occupation. Things have changed. And now there are a lot of gaps in what we need to do. And really, someone serious about wondering, what is God's will for my life? would really appreciate some guidance on people who have thoroughly read their Bibles and they've thought through, okay, how do we apply this principle over here to this situation over here in our own lives that the word of God has not envisaged? And here we are. We've got some rules. We've got some regulations. And it really takes a lot of the anxiety off life before God if we've got the manual and we can just flip to page 72, section 3, and see this is what we need to do And I know for sure whether or not I'm pleasing God or just going off and doing my own thing. And so there was a lot of hand-washing that went on. There's two kinds that our text talks about. One is just the initial kind of a rinsing of the hands. Just around your house, oh, we're going to eat. I'm just going to rinse my hands under the tap and make sure that they're ritually clean. But if you went out to the marketplace, and who knows who you might be having contact with that Goodwill or the Bazrobe or wherever you're going. There are some weird people out there and maybe even some Gentiles and non-Jews or people who are sinning against God and have got unclean lives in some way. We've got to have a bit more of a serious washing. And they would dunk themselves up to the elbows, if not immerse themselves completely. The word is actually baptizo, to baptize. They were immersing themselves or pouring water over themselves So they could be clean before God when they ate their food. And they are are stunned that Jesus is just completely ignoring this very important regulation of purity. And surely if someone's a prophet from God, he must care about holiness. He must care about calling the people back to repentance and purity of life before God. And to their horror, Jesus seems very blasé about all that kind of stuff. And his disciples, whom Jesus is personally responsible for, they are imitating Jesus' own walk with God. These 12 guys are just ripping off a piece of bread and shoving it in their mouth and not even bothering to wash their hands. And the Pharisees and the scribes challenge Jesus. He needs to be brought down a peg or two and reminded of the very important tradition of the elders. Okay, it might not actually be in the word of God, but we have this tradition. We have this case law, these precedents. And if you were a Jewish rabbi or a scribe, you would memorize thousands and thousands of laws. And they had mnemonic devices and little shortcuts that you could commit all these things to memory. So you could bring them up as a sort of flashcard in your mind and know, oh, this particular situation, yep, we studied that 
five years ago at seminary, and here is the correct answer. Boom. They had all this case law in their minds, and it was very important for them to put what they described as a fence around the law. God is so holy, and to sin against him, so potentially devastating and destructive, we need to keep people as far away from obedience as possible. It's like one of those big um, electrical generator stations, whatever they call them. You know, it's buzzing away, and if you run in there, if your Frisbee goes into that place and you run in there and touch it, you are just going to be fried. And so they put a fence around it so you don't destroy yourselves. And that was the idea of the scribes. We're going to put some boundaries around the law of God so no one accidentally brushes against the terrifying, destructive holiness of God and destroys themselves. That was the function of all these traditions that they had carefully, over the generations, gradually added up one over the other. And does Jesus enter into some polite religious dialogue with these guys? Does he have a nice little chat about some differing religious opinions and perhaps we could discuss this and learn something from each other? No way. Jesus blasts these guys with both barrels, doesn't he? And we have this really wrong idea that Jesus is just really sweet and kind and gentle and meek and mellow, and he's not. He gets angry at people and he rebukes them sharply and just blasts these guys and to their faces denounces them as hypocrites. You hypocrites, he calls them. A hypocrite was originally not a term of derision. It's just the Greek word for an actor, someone who would go on stage and act a part in a play. And in Greek drama, the actors would hold a mask in front of their face, wouldn't they? They would hold a mask there with a big smile or a big frown, which was kind of great as an actor because you could be having a terrible day and get stuck in traffic and show up at the theater And you could just put your happy mask on and people would think this is a really joyful person. But inside you were cranky and you were angry and you were annoyed. And that, Jesus is saying, is just what these guys are like. These rules and regulations they're following, these outward observances are actually masking who they really are. They're holding up a pretense, a painted face to the people around them and to God. And it's total garbage. It's total fakery. And Jesus says, Isaiah was talking just about you guys in chapter 29. When he, in Isaiah chapter 29, when he spoke about the vanity and foolishness of Israel's worship in those days. This people pays me lip service, God says in Isaiah. But their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. There's three things I want to talk about this afternoon that are involved in hypocrisy. And the first one is this. Hypocrisy is all about false worship. False worship. What Isaiah calls lip service. I'm serving God with my lips. My heart is a hundred miles away. Look, guys, it's very easy to say the right things, isn't it? It's very easy to pray the right things, and it's very easy to sing the right things. And we can be praying and speaking and saying words of power and truth and beauty that deeply move people around us without our own hearts being moved 
in the slightest. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan talks about those who are brisk talkers in religion. Oh, he's a brisk talker in religion. What a devastating thing for God to say about us. Man, that guy can talk a good game. And you can go to a Bible study that he leads, and he can just take you through, through the word of God and open things up and, and talk for, for hours and hours about the grace of God and what it means to obey God and follow him and what we should do with theology and mission and go on and on and on and speak with power and eloquence about the things of God. But it's just words. It's just our lips flapping away, and nothing is going on down here. Is it not so easy for us to come here on Sunday and worship God while our hearts and our minds are far from him? Do you ever drive somewhere and you arrive and you're like, I don't even remember how I got to this destination. I was completely checked out and somewhere else. And do we not sometimes come at the end of a church service? We're like, how? I'm not even sure what happened today. We sang some songs, we prayed some prayers, and I was thinking and feeling and imagining a completely different set of ideas. And this is true no matter what denomination or tradition we come from. Catholics do it, Orthodox do it, Anglicans do it, but Pentecostals also do it. You could be here dancing and raising your hands and speaking in tongues a mile to the minute, and your heart could be far from the Lord. And guess what? God is not impressed with that layer of raspberries. He wants our hearts. God does not want empty words. And so if we want to be a church that values true worship, it's not about spending a lot more money on sound equipment or having more musical training for our worship leaders or longer sermons. It's about having our own hearts engaged before God. And we must repent do we not, about how often our hearts have been far from the Lord while our lips have been moving. Man looks on the outward appearance, God said to Samuel, but the Lord looks on the heart. And whether your hands are up or down, whether your lips are moving or not, whether you're on your knees or standing up or in your seat, God sees what we do not see when we look around this room. And he knows where our hearts are at, whether they're filled with love for God and for his kingdom, or whether they're filled with selfishness, greed, judgment, and resentment. God sees all those things. And therefore, because the people of Israel had hearts far from God, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, they worship me in vain. Their worship is a farce. And God is not pleased with a farce. He's not impressed with a farce. And we can generate a tremendous amount of energy every Sunday, pumping up the volume and going crazy here in worship without doing anything that truly pleases the heart of God. And for this false worship that we are all guilty of to some degree, Jesus calls us to repent because the kingdom of God is not a matter of words. It's a matter of power and truth. So that's the first mark of hypocrisy is false worship. The second one is false authority. False authority because the scribes and the Pharisees were setting aside the commandments of God to set up their own 
traditions. The traditions initially, I'm sure, were well-meant. They came out of a genuine desire to please God. But over time, over the generations, the attention and the focus came onto the traditions, and God's word and God's commandments receded to the background until they were completely out of focus. And the example that Jesus brings forward is this matter of Korban. So Jesus quotes from the book of Exodus, chapters 20 and 21, about obeying your parents. He quotes the positive and the negative. The positive is this, you must honor your father and your mother. The negative, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When I was a kid, I did not like those verses. Now that I'm a parent, my opinion has changed somewhat. God, in the Bible, it's very clear, God takes obedience and honoring of parents very, very, very seriously. In fact, the relationships between children and parents in the family are the foundation of a civilization that works compared with one that is going off into chaos. And God treats this matter so seriously in Exodus 21 that he threatens the death penalty to children who curse their parents. Now, if you're at a new job and you go through the the employee training manual and you discover, oh, this is a fireable offense, you're going to take note of that. But if you discover there is the death penalty for this offense, I'm pretty sure you would pull out your highlighter and make a note to yourself. I better remember this. This is not some some weird peripheral matter. This is a really important matter in the Old Testament that God takes extremely seriously. But over time, the traditions of the elders allowed for a certain loophole called Korban. And Korban was a declaration you could make over your property that it was devoted to the temple. The great thing about it was that you didn't have to give it to the temple right now. You could say, my donkey or my house or my car is Korban, and when I die, then the temple gets it. In the meantime, I can use it as I wish. I can't derive profit from it. I can't give it to someone else, but it's sort of like a legacy endowment, just like a university might go to its alumni and say, hey, would you consider putting us into your will as a donation? And you could put it in there and maybe have some kind of tax write-off. This is exactly what was going on. So if you were a Jew, and you might just have had, your wife just might have had your fourth kid, Your house was getting a little small. Your car was going to the shop a bit too often. And you were in a bit of a tight financial situation. But your parents were also getting older, starting to get too old to work out in the fields on their own. And you sit down with your rabbi slash financial advisor and you say, look, here's our budget. We just, we're in a real pickle here and things are about to get a lot tighter for us. He would say, well, I've got some good news for you. There's, um, a new program that came out a couple years ago. It's called Corban, and here's the brochure, and this is actually really going to help you guys out in sorting out your financial situations. You won't have to worry about your parents, and in fact, you're really going to be helping out the temple and helping out the religious situation here. So you're going to help yourself, and you're also going to be doing something really good for God and for the nation. Well, Jesus says, this is all just a bunch of religious BS. This is just a clever workaround, a sneaky little loophole so that you can do exactly what the very word of God is sternly ordering you not to do. 
Yeah, you're pretending you're vowing it to God, but you're really dedicating it to yourself. And you are evading the most important of your obligations to maintain your parents in their old age. And God is not tricked by this. He is offended and he's angry at your clever evasion, which just nullifies the word of God, which just cancels out the word of God so you don't have to obey it. And Jesus says, and you guys do many things like that. This Corban situation is just an example Jesus brings up to show it's a whole rotten system that your traditions are being set up to evade real responsibility before God. And is this not how hypocrites use human tradition? So they don't have to come face to face with the heart-searching demands of the word of God that take us and our situation and make us question and dig into things and seek the Lord and ask him, what is your will? Instead, we've got a ready-made answer here, which coincidentally also supports my own selfish objectives. How handy and how useful. And brothers and sisters, there is no selfish thing that you want to do that you cannot find a Bible scholar who will help you with a biblical argument to do it. There are people out there who basically specialize in twisting the word of God to suit your own selfish and greedy objectives. And we should be extremely suspicious of ourselves when we find ourselves leaning towards an interpretation of scripture that really is helping us do the selfish, greedy, nasty thing that we want to do. Are we not all prone to reading the Bible in a way that doesn't challenge ourselves? Judges other people, of course, but never really shines the light of God's holiness into our own lives. And tradition helps us to evade all of that. Tradition is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a useful thing. It's basically inevitable that over time we develop patterns of interpretation to help us understand the scripture. But there is the very great danger that scripture falls into the background. And we're not really even reading our Bibles anymore because we've got some kind of shortcut that we use. I worked for Desiring God for several years, so I can say this. Here's this guy, John Piper, who's a great Bible teacher. And he's got this thing called Ask Pastor John. It's a little podcast, and you can ask him any question, and he'll give you a thoughtful biblical answer. The problem with this and with great Bible teachers is that we find ourselves closing the Bible and just going straight to John Piper, whoever our particular guy is, Beth Moore, whoever it is. And we just adapt their interpretations. Well, surely they know better. They've walked with God. And I'll just go and look up in the index of their book or their website and find the answer and just go and do that. And over time, we're no longer having a relationship with God ourselves where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. We've outsourced our own relationship to God, to someone else. And we've developed our own little tradition, our own little idol. That perhaps is allowing us to evade a true encounter with God ourselves. So if you have one guy that you're reading and you have 40 of his books on your bookshelf and you're listening to his podcast and subscribing to his website, maybe for a time you need to walk away from that a bit and open up your Bible again and deal with God yourself. We're all so subject to this, aren't we? We're subject to receiving this. We're also subject to setting it up ourselves. Imagine you lead someone to the Lord or a friend of yours does and you start discipling them 
and you're meeting them for coffee every Tuesday morning, and they've got all these problems and issues that they're bringing towards you, up, to, up with you. And you start walking them through the Bible and how to deal with this stuff yourself. But that's pretty slow, isn't it? That's pretty painstaking. And you find yourself almost developing a little manual for them. Well, this is, this is how I pray. This is my own pattern of giving or tithing. Um, this is how I recommend you conduct your dating relationship. And we have a whole list of things that we just dump on people. And these new believers start looking to us instead of to the Lord and to our own ideas and concepts and precepts. And pretty soon they are dependent on a human tradition. It's not a tradition that's thousands of years old. It might only be a month or two old. But nevertheless, it's something that is seducing people away from the word of God. And as soon as we start cutting ourselves off from God's word, we as a church and as individual believers are cutting ourselves off from God himself. We want to be a church that is all about the word of God where we are reading scripture and we are praying scripture and we are rebuking and encouraging one another with scripture repeatedly. Because guess what? Bart has very few resources and you have very few resources. And your wisdom compared with God's wisdom is useless and foolish in comparison. We need to be feeding ourselves and one another with the word of God, not with the garbage of human opinions even the opinions of very good and very godly and very wise people. You know, we've got, I was thinking today, we have the scriptures up on the screen here, which is great. But I could probably sneak in a few verses of my own, and I'm not sure how many of us would really realize what was going on. And we need more people with their Bible open in the front pew, flipping through it like the Bereans did in the book of Acts, testing what the apostle was saying according to the word of God. I do not want a church that is dependent on whatever I happen to say that no one ever challenges me or disagrees with. I am not the authority in this church. Jesus is through the word of God. And if this church is to thrive and last for more than a year or two, we must be a church that is built on the unyielding bedrock of God's word, which will far outlast any of us. So here are these hypocrites. They've got their false worship. They've got their false authority. And the third thing Jesus talks about that that is false is their purity. They have a false purity. They imagine that by washing themselves and their hands and their food and so forth, that they are being clean before God, but they are not, Jesus says. In verse 14, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. No, it's the things that come out of a person that defile him. It's not what's going in your mouth that defiles you. It's what's coming from the inner core of your being, your heart. And we think of the heart as Westerners, as the seat of our emotions. In the Bible, your heart is the center of your whole personality. Your mind, your emotions, and your will are all in your heart. It's the center of your motivation and your deliberation and your intention, the core of who you are. And Jesus says, to talk about foods and what you can eat and what you can't eat and how you wash your hands and all these outward ceremonial things, they do not touch the heart in the slightest. They go into your stomach and then they go out into the drain, he says literally, out into the, into the sewer. It completely bypasses your heart. Your heart is where it's at. As someone once said, 
The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's all about our hearts before God. See, Jesus is also leading a holiness movement. Not one like the Pharisees, based on externals and rules and regulations made by men. A holiness movement that comes from the heart itself. And we need this because our hearts, they're a little grim once we start digging down below that first layer, aren't they? There's some, there some nasty and uncomfortable stuff in there. When I was a young lad in elementary school, at the end of every school year, I would have the horrifying challenge of cleaning out my backpack. Anyway, anyone remember this? And over the course of the year, I had shoved things down there, and there were a lot of lunches and chocolate milks and fruit and things way down in my backpack. And I would never disturb those earlier archaeological layers during the course of my week, but there was a time of reckoning at the end of June when I would have to tip that thing upside down and see what had come to life inside my backpack. And sandwiches with green and blue rings around them and fur and fruit that had basically liquefied and just vile, disgusting stuff that really should be regulated and inspected by the United Nations. It was just disgusting. And our hearts are a little bit like that, aren't they? There is stuff shoved way down deep in our interior knapsack that we're all a little afraid to start rooting around in. But there is a day of reckoning when that backpack is going to be tipped upside down and the Lord God himself is going to start sorting through all those nasty sandwiches and liquefied fruit and rottenness and corruption. It's down there. We all have it down there. Some of us have managed to shove it down a lot further than others, but we all have nasty stuff deep down inside. And this is what Jesus came to deal with, who we are as people. You see, our, the impurity that we have to worry about is not an impurity from outside in the world that's trying to break in. It's the impurity of us inside that's constantly trying to break out. And it will break out. When we are under stress, when we feel like we're threatened and under attack, there are going to be nasty things that bubble up to the surface. And rage and vengeance and hatred and malice, all these things that Jesus talks about, this horrifying list of hatreds and perversions are all going to come out of our hearts, just like when you poke a wasp's nest with a stick. Then the buzzing and the stinging begins. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer who spent years in Siberia in, in political re-education camps and experienced horrifying things there, said this, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Wouldn't that be nice and simple if we could just do that? But, he writes, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. 
This is what ultimately is wrong with the world today, that we all have this source of evil and pollution in our own hearts, and those that are being victimized can quickly turn and the next minute be the victimizer. We are all deeply infected with sin, and we multiply that sin by our hypocritical pretensions before God. False worship, false authority, false purity, none of it can stand before the all-seeing gaze of a holy God. And it is a bit ironic that I was, as I was thinking, how shall I conclude this sermon? Perhaps some points of practical application. And I was on the verge of writing up some rules against hypocrisy. Right? Isn't that what we all want? Okay, pastor, give me the technique. Give me eight things that I can write down in my notes right now and go home and put into practice. We're just adding Phariseeism 2.0, the new and upgraded version, aren't we? We're just going a level deeper into our lying and and self-deceit. If we think that all we need are a few techniques and a few rules and a few a few ideas to fix this problem. It goes much deeper than that. But thank God, Jesus came to deal with this problem. He didn't just show up on this earth to blast us for our lying and deceit and hypocrisy and then leave. He came to deal with this stuff by dying for us on the cross. And it's only through a deeper encounter with Christ on the cross that we will gain the power and courage to remove the mask over our own face and be honest before God. At the cross, Jesus brings our hidden sins into God's light. He dumps that knapsack out and he takes all that squishy, disgusting garbage, the stuff we know about and hide from others, the stuff we even hide from ourselves, Everything we hate and loathe and fear and despise about ourselves, Jesus goes into the knapsack and he takes that on his own shoulders. We are hypocrites because we are afraid to face up to our own sin. Jesus was not afraid to face up to our own sin. And he's crucified naked and shamed and humiliated in public. All that stuff you want to hide, he brings and faces up to and takes on his own shoulders the true horror of sin. Jesus faces up to what we will never face up to ourselves. Is that not good news? That Jesus faces up to what we are too afraid and too weak to face up to ourselves. And he takes the whole reeking mass of our sin and our hypocrisy, and he takes it with him into the furnace of God's judgment, where it is destroyed forever. Thank God. And by doing that, by dying on the cross for us and rising from the dead, Jesus permanently breaks sin's power to condemn and shame and bow us down with guilt. Is that not what keeps us hiding our sins? The fear that there is no way that we can pay for this. There's no way we can deal with this. And therefore, I can't even, I'm just going to shove it back there. Jesus breaks that power so that we can be truthful before God, knowing that despite our great sins, we're not going to be condemned. We're not going to be rejected. We're not going to be thrust into outer darkness, 
but that nevertheless, through Jesus and his atoning death, we can be forgiven and accepted. The key to breaking hypocrisy is to stop pleading our own merits before God. To stop pretending to God, to God like we've got some justification for our existence before him. That we've got this resume carefully edited, carefully brushed, showing only our good sides. Here's this beautiful layer of raspberries, Lord. Please accept me. That is a game that is never going to work with God. But the good news is that we are invited to plead the merits of Christ before God. When we pray and when we worship and when we obey, we can say, in Jesus' name, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus' bucket of raspberries is pure and good and healthy right down to the bottom. And that is what we are depending on. And what the basis of our whole life before God must be if we are not to be false, hypocritical people. Let me close with these verses from 1 John chapter 1. Verses that should be underlined in your Bibles and you should refer to them often because they're so precious. Here's what John says. 1 John 1 verse 5. Here is the message we have heard from him and pass on to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to be sharing in his life while we go on living in darkness, our words and our lives are a lie. Wow. Harsh condemnation against hypocrisy. But if we live in the light as he himself was in the light, then we share a common life and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be sinless, we are self-deceived and the truth is not in us. We're all sinful You are lying to yourself and to us if you think you're not. But if we confess our sins, he is just and may be trusted to forgive our sins and cleanse us from every kind of wrongdoing. Every single thing that Jesus lists as springing out of the foul source of our hearts are all forgivable sins because of Jesus even the sin of hypocrisy. Is that not good news, fellow hypocrites and fellow lovers of Jesus, that we can be free to come into God's light because Jesus takes us by the hand and brings us there. Our worship cannot be based on what good people we are and how well we've obeyed God's commandments, but only and joyfully through who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let's bow our heads and thank God for his gift of Jesus Christ. Heavenly and holy God, we confess to you that so often we lie to one another, to you and to ourselves. And your your all-seeing eye penetrates through all of that and you know the true state of our hearts, O oh God. We thank you that your holiness through Jesus no longer needs to be something terrifying for us sinners. But It can be a welcoming light that Jesus brings us into. Lord, may we not be people of hypocrisy. May we not be a church built on religious pride and religious deceit and the traditions of men. We want to be men and women and children of truth. We thank you that we are free to be true because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and the Holy Spirit that he pours out on us. In his holy and liberating name we pray. 
Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.